Welcome to Daybreak Devotions, a podcast version of the daily radio ministry of the McLeansville Baptist Church with your host, Pastors Mike Barnett and Corey Cantrell. Good Thursday morning to you, and welcome back to Daybreak Devotions with Pastors Mike Barnett and Corey Cantrell from McLeansville Baptist Church. We have been this week on the topic of the obedient heart of Jesus, and that's been an ongoing topic of the larger subject, which is you know really just looking at the heart of Jesus as we seek and pray over and look to partner with God in the transformation of our own hearts into Christ's likeness. And it kind of surprised me as we began with, was it, uh, I guess, Tuesday, with talking about the obedient heart of Jesus. Kind of surprised me that we've ended up now with three days' worth of that discussion. And so here in just a few minutes, we're going to conclude that. We're going to play the rest of what we recorded really two days ago and finish up that that discussion. But let me say good morning to you. Good morning. We don't want to forget that you're here. Thank you. And uh, you'll have a contribution to make as we go along. All right. (laughs) But... What I wanted to do to introduce, introduce today's, uh, the rest of the discussion that we're going to play today, is I was reflecting in my morning prayer time after reading in the Psalms, and I just really got struck with this thought about the heart and what it means to live from the heart. As I was saying to you earlier, um, this was really just something that I, ha- I haven't rehearsed this. I just started writing uh, in my morning prayer time, and I ended up filling up about, I guess, about five and a half pages in my journal. Now, I think I can read that fairly quickly, but honestly, as I was writing this, I thought, I really want to share this somehow. I need a format to do this. And I, I praise the Lord for the formats we have, whether it's preaching from the pulpit, writing devotionals for the church, or doing this radio broadcast. But as I was thinking about the series we're on, this fits right in there because no one lived from the heart better than Jesus did, and no one fought for the heart harder than Jesus did, or I should say, than Jesus does. But as I was reading in the Psalms, I was uh, reading from about Psalm 31 through Psalm 35, 36, and these are the things that begin to capture my, my mind, but particularly Psalm 31 and verse 24. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. And I thought back to Psalm 27 and verse 14. We all love this Psalm. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. What these verses say to us is, let your heart be courageous. And I got to thinking about that. The potential of our heart. Our heart has great potential. We have Mm -hmm. this great capacity that that exists within our heart. Now, I know, and I I think we got to be clear again, because people... Some people will think this. Well, what about the deceitful heart, the desperately wicked heart? Yeah, we got that. I was teaching Sunday in Sunday school in the teen class, and I, we kind of termed it this way. We said we've kind of got two hearts, but it's really just a heart that gets divided. What do we mean by that is we've still got that old carnal nature in us. The old heart of the flesh still exists, but it is being replaced by this new heart that the Holy Spirit has brought to us when we were born again. And there's that conflict. Galatians 5 talks about it. So many passages do. So there's that reality. But that new heart God has given us. You know, a good man out of the treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. So 
out of that good heart, there's a lot of potential to live. Let your heart be courageous. Your heart has some things in it that can really be, uh, that can really make a difference. Well, here's what I wrote, and I just want to read this, and then when we're done, we'll uh, we'll kind of see where we're at and and move forward. But Jesus had the most devout heart of all ever. He knew the scriptures and he believed the scriptures. He lived his life by them. He lived as if they were truth. Psalm 33, for example, listen to these verses. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. Jesus believed those scriptures and he lived according to them. He believes it's true. And if he believes this that I just read, he is invincible. Imagine Jesus quoting these verses or praying these verses in camp one night with the disciples. There is so much about the heart in the Psalms. That's what really began to capture my attention and make me think about this. We learn how the heart is really the center of everything and how that only by living from our heart can we live life to the fullest. But what does that mean, to live from the heart? Children know, at least until someone crushes their heart, clamps down on it, and then they learn to hide it. It seems more and more these days the children do that at a younger age. This world is not kind to nor easy on the heart. To live from the heart means to live first in and from the spirit within us, to live spiritually. It is to live from desire. But already, because of our age and the bad theology uh, and the hijacked meaning of words in our time, we think, no, shut that down. We are taught not to live from desire, but be reasonable and just fall in line with the standard and what is expected. No one who ever changed the world, even their own corner of it, lived by reason and standard expectations. I didn't write this down, but I was thinking about people like Edison and Lincoln, Martin Luther, Jesus. Mm -hmm. So no one who ever changed the world, even their own corner in it, lived by reason and standard expectations. They all lived from the heart. The heart is where faith comes from. To live by faith, which is what the just do, is to live from the heart. It is unreasonable. It is not sensible. But that is the point. To live first by reason of thought and feeling or by the senses of the body is to live confined like a lion in a cage. Life becomes a series of daily do's and don'ts. When we learn to live from the heart, it's like the cage is opened and the lion is free. Now, be prepared Tame people, and religious folks are often the most tamed of all, will fear the lion. Generally, we need not fear a lion. We just stay out of its way and let it be who and what it is. As I read these psalms and see the heart alive in faith, I see how it is central, vital, preeminent in the life lived to the glory of God. From the heart we offer worship. From the heart we go to war against the true enemies. From the heart, we wrestle with the troubles and problems of life, and we win. The mind tries to wrestle with trouble and gets pinned. The feelings get slammed. But the heart is a life and agile combatant, hard to lay hold on, nearly impossible to seize. And that is why so often the opponents will seek to crush it, bring an overwhelming force. 
not to tame it, but to kill it. And if that can't be done, force it into hiding, lock it away, and rescue this poor soul from desire and deliver them back to a life lived by the senses and by reason. Now, go and look most people in the eyes and see if there is the flicker of desire at all. Does the lion still live there? You may notice how difficult it is to look other people in the eye, or if you can, how few can look back. Reason and sense often cast the eyes down. Only desire can raise them. The eyes will follow the heart. Oh, and be sure, desire still lives. But when the heart has been crushed and locked away and not allowed to find its true life in and with God, it will surface in dark ways. Desire turns to lust. We blame the man or the woman for their sinful lust, and it is their sin. But what are the responsibility of the, those who denied them their life from the heart and pushed them into the darkness? Things like, you can't. Stop that. Be quiet. Be still. There are so many harsh words. This campaign to make others behave, to force compliance, it just never works. We either light the fire of rebellion or we snuff out the fire of the heart's desire, leaving either way trouble, broken people, more problems. As I watch Jesus in the Gospels and as I learn to experience him in my own heart, I am learning just how unlike Jesus this is. Oh, make no mistake, he brought the fight to the false religionists, the viperous hypocrites, as he called them, the ones who were crushing hearts and forcing compliance, calling everyone to get in line and be sensible and reasonable. But just think of the hearts that he rescued from those locked-up dark recesses of denial. The Samaritan woman by the well, Bartimaeus the blind man, the leper, the crippled man of Bethesda, Matthew the tax collector, and oh, that woman caught in the very act of adultery. These are hearts which had been crushed, bound, pushed into darkness, and who had either given up in despair or rose up in defiant sin. But Jesus made them all free. He gave them new life. They were brought back to life, living from the heart. To know the truth is to be made free. And so to guard the heart is not to keep it locked up like a dangerous criminal behind bars. To guard our heart is to secure it like royalty from the threats that would try to take it out. And I closed all of that with this question. How can I be a heart rescuer today? And those were my thoughts as I was reading in the Psalms and thinking about the studies that we've been doing of the life of Jesus. You know, I really want to have a heart like his. We'll probably get to the warrior heart later on, but I was reading again of the battle with Satan and the wilderness temptation, and boy, you talk about the warrior. Jesus in that whole scene, I wrote down three things. He's fiercely loyal. You're not going to get him to back down from the word of God and from the Father. He is faithfully lethal, and I mean, he, he brings the word, and he is deadly with it to he's, the enemy. He's swinging that sword. He's swinging it, and he's frustratingly laborious. Ooh. Yeah. I had to find that word, I admit, <laughs> but I was like, okay, I'm going to keep that going. But he was frustratingly laborious to the enemy because it says at the end of that account in Luke, after the, and I'm paraphrasing, but after the devil had thrown everything he had at him and got whooped, he had to leave. I mean, he had to go away for a while. The devil was beaten. There's a word used in that passage that's the same word. I believe I'm saying this right. I, I'm not, I didn't check myself. It's just in my, my mind pulling a file. But I believe the word that's used there is the same word as when Jesus says to the storm, peace, be still. 
that be quiet, that stop. This is the same kind of authority Jesus has when he speaks against the devil, when, he, when, he, when the devil ceased, when the devil stopped. It's like that storm. It ceases. It, it has nothing. It can bring nothing against the power of the Son of God. That's what happens to a person who learns how to live from their heart. And so this pursuit of wholeheartedness, man, there's a lot of people that we could help set free just by bringing this hope and this message to them. Absolutely. So the, the word that we've used so much over the last few days has been identity, being secure in our identity and then allowing that identity to cultivate our relationship with God. But I think what you've highlighted as well is another element of that, which is the authority that we have with, in, and through God in the person of Jesus Christ. By having our own heart rescued, we have the authority, um, uh, the, the the reference, just uh, the, the, the ministry of reconciliation mm-hmm. Paul talks about, and I believe it's 1 Corinthians 12, and I, I may be off on the exact Second reference. 2 Corinthians 5. Okay, that one there. Or 4. It's in there. It's in one of those Corinthians <laughs> epistles. This is what happens when you pull something off the cuff. But that, but being given that ministry of reconciliation, those of us that have been reconciled to God now have the opportunity to be reconcilers of other people's hearts, to show them the way, to be engaged with that. That comes from being secure in our identity with God. And, well, I'm sorry. Go I ahead. thought you were no, about yeah. to wrap. I was just going to say, and it's not just for people that are lost. Right. This is a ministry we bring to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes. Just like what Jesus told Peter, you know, uh, strengthen the brethren. When you're converted, strengthen the brethren. All of this ties in so much, and it is a forgotten part of our Christian life. It's a, it's a part that we've kind of left to the wayside of, well, we got to be out about getting the gospel out to the masses. Well, absolutely we should, but the gospel is deliverance from everything, complete deliverance from sin and its power and its bondage and the discouragement and the defeat and the lies and the agreements from the enemy. All of that is the good news that Jesus brought to mankind, total redemption, and we get to be co-laborers with Christ in that. Well, I was that was all first draft stuff there, and as I got to the end, I thought, you know, I, I meant to go back, and it would have been great to start out that with Proverbs 4.23, keep the heart with all diligence, for mm-hmm. out of it are the issues of life. People's lives dry up, and it starts internally. And I tell you, uh, we, we've said it many times. You just alluded to it. I said it in the reading there. How guilty we've been of crushing the spirit of people yep. in, in, in the church. And we get that that legacy of legalism and Phariseeicalism and traditionalism, and I, I don't know. And, it, and it's not just on the fundamentalist right side; it's on the leftist side too, making people feel bad because they don't care about everything. Yep. And we just crush people's spirit when we should teach people how to live freely from the heart, rescue the heart. Absolutely. And, and look, I'm uh, in. If if we were to make an analogy of this, of what level of warrior are you for rescuing the hearts of other people? I, I've signed the dotted line. I've signed my contract with the military. Yeah. have not yet made it to basic training, <laughs> so, but, but it's important. So that's where we're going to be segueing into the remainder of our conversation for today. So now we turn our attention to the conclusion of our discussion. Well, you reminded me of uh, something that Henry Nowen he speaks to this a lot. You know, you talked about, you know, I'm, a, I'm making an agreement with this accusation that I am a nobody. I, I see my identity as nothingness. And then that just means that I just get up and live a humdrum life of disappointment all the time. Henry Nowen, 
writes about this. He says, Jesus died well because he knew he was going to God and he would soon send his spirit of love to his friends. It is good for you that I leave, he said, because unless I leave, I cannot send my spirit who will lead you to the full communion, to the full truth, to the full betrothal. With that Holy Spirit, he knew that his beloved apostles would live better, happier lives. This vision is not just about Jesus. It is also about you and me. Jesus came to share his identity with you and to tell you that you are the beloved sons and daughters of God. Just for a moment, try to enter this enormous mystery that you, like Jesus, are the beloved daughter or the beloved son of God. This is the truth. Furthermore, your belovedness preceded your birth. You were the beloved before your father, mother, brother, sister, or church loved you or hurt you. You are the beloved because you belong to God from all eternity. Boy, just stop right there and just soak that truth. Let that truth just soak into you. I, I want to read that last part again. Just for a moment, try to enter this enormous mystery that you, like Jesus, are the beloved daughter or the beloved son of God. Furthermore, your belovedness preceded your birth. You were the beloved before your father, mother, brother, sister, or church loved you or hurt you. You are the beloved because you belong to God from all eternity. God loved you before you were born, and God will love you after you die. In Scripture, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is a very fundamental truth of your identity. This is who you are, whether you feel it or not. You belong to God from eternity to eternity. Life is just a little opportunity for you during a few years to say, I love you too. Man, I love that last part. I love that last part. Can I read that last part again? Have at it. God loved you before you were born, and God will love you after you die. In Scripture, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is a very fundamental truth of your identity. That means, folks, get this. This is who you are whether you feel it or not. You belong to God from eternity to eternity. Life is just a little opportunity for you during a few years to say, I love you too. But I mean, isn't that, that's it. That's the mystery uh, that, you know, he says this is an enormous mystery that like Jesus, this is who you are. So let's go back to that last line and let's put the perspective of life back into those terms. You know, we know that man's, uh, what's, what's the Westminster Confession? Man's chief end is to glorify, glorify God, God and enjoy to him and enjoy forever. him forever. Okay, life is just a few short years for us to have an opportunity to say to God, I love you too. If we were to really grasp onto that, we would stop comparing what we do in our life with what anybody else does. Well, my life doesn't matter because look what brother so-and-so did. Look at the ministry that they've had. Look at the life that they have. I'll never measure up to that. Stop. God's not holding us to brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so standard. The only thing God wants us to do is to use our life to say, I love you. Think about that. The standard he's holding you to is not some little pity any fellow broken human. He's yes. holding you to the standard of Jesus, the perfect one, and he's saying, I see you this way. Yeah. That's, just, a, that's an amazing thing. Just love me. And and if we would really love God to that capacity, our service for him, oh, that that's small potatoes. That's that's nothing because it's no longer an obligation. It, it's just our life. I might get in trouble for referencing it, but Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic from some years ago, said, and that was the part that I might get in trouble for referencing, mystic. You know, yeah. Stay with us, folks. Ah! <laughs> but he said if the only prayer that we ever prayed in our entire lives was, thank you. He said it would be enough. 
I mean, just think about the power of that, like the heart that's just so full of gratitude to God for all that he is and all that he does and has done. So we're running out of time again. I, I wanted to, to just address the, not the, maybe the other side of the coin, but address the, some of the issues like, what is it that hinders us, or, or why are we not secure in who we are, and, and, and sort of some practical ways that we can latch into. I found this article, 10 Positive Signs You Are Secure With Yourself. So if I read these, think about the opposite. The opposite would be true of somebody who's not secure. And maybe, maybe just to get them out there, I don't know if time will allow us to talk about all of them, but maybe we think about, well, how does being in right relationship with God my Father through Jesus help me fix this, okay? So here's the first one. Uh, again, 10 positive signs you are secure with yourself. Number one, you are happy being alone. Okay? So I think what we're saying there is that there is this, there's this ability to be alone and not be lonely. Right. Not be overwhelmed by that. Well, that would make sense if, if my identity is in my relationship with God because I'm never without his presence in yes. my life. Matter of fact, sometimes the more secure we are in him, we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to need that time to go be alone so we can be with God. Number two, uh, I know I'm secure when I don't need to be right. Whoa, uh-oh, wait a minute. Did I read that one right? Now we might be getting in some of our problems. <laughs> you know, I, I don't need to be right. I'm secure when it's okay for me to admit that, you know what, I didn't understand that or I don't know that or I was wrong about that. A lot of people struggle with that, that part of it. So I do want to kind of comment on that one because I think a lot of people could hear that and say, well, that doesn't that doesn't apply to Jesus because he did have to be right. And I think it's important to highlight Jesus was so secure in himself, he did not have to have other people think he was right. Mm -hmm. He did not need their validation or their approval. He knew in himself this is the truth. And whether somebody else accepts it or not, that's on them. So as we apply that to us, obviously we're broken and imperfect people, but we do see that standard and that example even lived out in the life of Jesus as well. You made me think you used the word validation. Um, so validation is determination of the degree of validity, or it's an act or a process or instance of validating something, saying that it's real, that right. it's authentic. And I thought about that word in, in, as opposed to affirmation, right? Because we talk about affirmation as a good thing. And affirmation is just the act of affirming something affirmed, a positive assertion. I nod my head in agreement. Right. So the difference is validation is, is I'm not complete unless you tell me that I'm accepted, yeah. right? But affirmation is... I hear what you're saying, and I agree with you. So Jesus was looking for affirmation all the time, mm -hmm. but what he didn't need, you used the right word, was validation. I think that's a critical uh, critical sure. point to make. I, I guess we're out of time. Let me hurry up and just say the rest of these so we don't leave everybody hanging. Number three is you're secure when you say no, the ability to say no. Well, we can talk about that in, in the church recently, how Jesus, you know, Matthew 1 or Mark 1, verse 36, Peter comes, hey, everybody's looking for you, Lord. We got a lot of work to do. And Jesus says, oh, well, I got somewhere else to be, yeah. so grab your bags. We're headed out. Yeah. You know, that's secure. That's being secure. And a lot of us have a hard time saying no because we're trying so hard to get people to validate us or make us feel like we're important. Number four, you show compassion. Uh, well, we know Jesus did that. Number five, you let go. 
You don't hold on to things. There's the ability to detach and not feel like you've got to carry everything in your life. That's a mark of of uh, security. Number six, you don't worry what others think of you. We've already talked about that one, and certainly Jesus had that. Number seven, you don't crave the limelight. Jesus heals the leper, and the leper, you know, wants to tell everybody and ends up does telling everybody, but Jesus' instruction was him, to him was don't tell anybody. Yep. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. That was, isn't that weird? But, but when you're secure in who you are, you don't need everybody else to champion your name. I wish I could remember this quote exactly. I heard J.D. Greer say this on a podcast that I was listening to today, yesterday, whatever day it was. He was talking about, he was asked the question about when he became the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and all the trouble that came with that. And there's a lot of, you know, heartache and grief he got and, you know, personal attacks and all this stuff. And he said that his wife said to him when he was asked to become the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, she said, she told him, she said, if you're doing this just to climb some stupid, foolish ladder of ambition you've got in your life, then this is wrong. Don't do it. And I'm kind of paraphrasing his paraphrase probably. But he said that he t- his wife told him this, and this is like really good. She said, fame is just you exposing yourself and making yourself available to a lot of people you don't care about at the expense of the people you do. Wow. Boom. <laughs> and I just think about that. Like Jesus knew that. He wasn't interested in having a big following. He was interested in the people that were interested in the truth. Yes. And being secure means I don't have to put myself out there for everybody to applaud me and make a name for myself. Number eight, you ask for help. Well, Jesus did that. I love Mark 6. He chose these 12 to be with him. Okay? Nothing wrong with asking for help. Number nine, you're prepared to try and fail. Oh, we could spend some time on that one. Well, I would love to get up there and sing, but, you know, I just, uh, it might not. uh... I mean, we could come up with a lot of things, right? But that's coming from that insecure place. I don't, can I make the point? We're not saying all this to humiliate or throw rocks. We're saying these are the these are real problems that we all struggle with, but when we get in the right relationship with our Father, He He helps us to overcome these hindrances. What we're trying to do is call this out so that we can afford ourselves the grace that our Father is giving to us. Hey, He asks us to do stuff, and He knows that sometimes we're going to mess up. But he still asked us to do it anyways. Jesus and Peter. Jesus called Peter to do something great and even told Peter, you're going to fall. But when you're converted, keep going. And, I, and I've loved that you have highlighted that so much over the last few months because that has been such a help for me personally to know that Jesus knew all of my flaws, my faults, my failures long before he ever called me to anything. And yet he still called. Mm-hmm. He still chose. And the grace that now I can give myself to put myself out there and know that, okay, if this doesn't go right, if, if I blow this, I don't have to beat myself up. Let's get up. I'm still beloved. I'm still near and dear to the heart of God. Let's move forward. Well, as we wrap this up today, I know what you're thinking. Whoa, 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 whoa. You said there were 10 things on that list. So the last one is when you're secure, you embrace your flaws. And I think the way we can see that from a biblical application is, you know, Paul himself said, I glory in my infirmities, you know, because I know that when I am weak, that is when I am going to tap into the strength that only Jesus can provide in my life. I mean, this is how we overcome these insecurities. This has been a great study on having an obedient heart and life. And 
Man, I'd love to have another half hour with you, but I guess we ought to roll. So have a blessed rest of your day. We'll see you next time. And we thank you for joining us on today's program. We hope that you'll tune in with us each and every day right here on Daybreak Devotions as Pastor Mike and I will discuss various topics in God's Word. If you've got any questions, comments, we would love to hear from you at daybreakdevotion at gmail.com.